Jonah chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from, from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, or herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way, and from the violence which is from his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent, and withdraw his burning anger, so that he will not perish. When God saw their deeds, they turned from their wicked way. Then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Is my mic on? Okay? Great. Mic's on, pictures on, we're all on. And good to be with you this morning. What a good group this morning. See some old friends, meet some new friends. But time flies, so let's get right into it. But we're talking about what God does for us, remember? We're going through Jonah. We talked about the way God calls in chapter 1. We talked about about the way God listens in chapter 2, lessons on prayer. But here we are, chapter 3, God responds. Turns out, you know, Jonah chapter 3 is, it's an exciting and encouraging chapter because it speaks to all of us. If you've ever longed for revival, or maybe you've wished you could start over again when, when you've done things that you wanted to undo. You know, many of you know I taught uh, chemistry in the university for many years, and one of the frequent questions the undergraduates used to ask me was, can I take that test again? You know, I think I could do better. I just blew it. Well, you see them writing the test, and I have to say uh, there was very little opportunity because pressing the reset button, it's an opportunity that's rarely given to us in life. In Jonah's case, he, he actually had to be put... You know where we were in the story. Chapter 2 finishes, Jonah's on the dry land. And Jonah had to be put into a place of absolute desperation before this reset button was offered to him. And he actually got a second chance to respond to God's call to go and preach to those Ninevites. Remember what he said about the Assyrians, those wicked Ninevites, that, that Jonah was so alienated from, and Jonah, but he had to be brought back to where? Dry land, to the place where he started. Brought back to the place where, well, he recognized the thing that we taught you last week, that running away from God is not possible. 
Jonah learned the hard way that running away from God or rebelling against God, if you're a believer, if you know God through Jesus Christ, I've got to remind you this morning that, that it, it can never lead to success. It can never lead to progress. And here's Jonah then. Where we get him to is return to dry land. He's shattered, he's weak, he's certainly wiser. But Jonah's at last ready to pay attention and respond obediently to what God asked him to do. We, we learned this morning about how God brings us to dry land. Remember in Exodus, in our first service, time and time again you get these moments in Scripture where God brings us to the place where we really can respond. And it's a place of dry land. And here's Jonah, alas, ready to pay attention, to respond obediently. He's ready at last to do what God asked him to do. And here it is in grace... God offered to Jonah a new opportunity, a second chance. And Jonah, this time he was willing to go, not surprisingly, of course, he was willing to act. And, of course, what that led to was the greatest revival, I think, in human history. So Jonah's on the beach. I don't know whether he, how he heard God. I don't recommend a shell on the beach as a method, but he says, Yes, God, I can hear you now. And that's the beginning of, of the revival. He, he said, yes, God. And he listened to God. And there it is, Jonah. Listening to God. You know, when we think about this chapter, we all think the great miracle in this book is, is, is releasing Jonah from that big fish. A fantastic event. But the miracle in the book of Jonah is what we're talking about this morning. It's the greatest mass conversion of Sinful and wicked people, I think, in human history. I've never heard of a case, anything like this. And you think about this case and you go, how did it begin? I want you to realize this morning, this great revival began when one weak man, who actually disobeyed God, was finally ready to answer God's call. This was a man who disappointed God. This was a man who you'd think had disqualified himself from any future service for God. And yet God led him to that big revival. Now, if that doesn't encourage you, I don't know what will. I don't know the history of all the people here, but I want you to be encouraged this morning thinking about how this began with one weak but obedient man. You imagine what God could do in your weakness but your obedience. Now, the way we're going to uh, frame this chapter, a big chapter, is really to, to deal with four questions. Four questions from Jonah 3. First question is, Jonah had failed. What does God do about our failure? We need to explore that. We need to understand the message we should preach. Jonah went to Nineveh with a clear message. We want to ask that question. There's a tricky thing here in this book. Does God ever change his mind? We need to explore that. And of course, the bottom line in all these questions is we always need to ask, well, what does God really want? What does God do about our failure? What message should we preach? Does God ever change his mind? What does God really want? Four very key questions as we get to this central point in the book of Jonah. So let's really get into this and ask the question, what does God do about our failure? Fantastic start, this this chapter, remember, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. That's an encouragement in itself. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim the message I give you. 
read that and you think of Jonah's history and you say, we cannot doubt that God is gracious and merciful to those that fail him. I mean, you'd think, you know, I was thinking about this, God used Jonah a second time, it would have been enough to rescue Jonah. Just to rescue Jonah, bring him to the place of repentance. But no, when you read this, God is ready to recommission Jonah. He's ready to give him the same responsibility he had the first time. Jonah still has a choice. Let me review. One of the important things we said last week is God gives us a choice. Remember we talked about crossroads. Jonah still has a choice because God commands, but he doesn't coerce. Very important principle in Scripture. Of course, that's why we're judged. You say, what's judgment about? It's, big. it's happened ever since Eden, that first choice, all through the Bible. God gives us a choice about obeying him and serving him. Of course, the principle is that we're accountable to him for the choice we make. Such an important principle. I want to restress it. We had it last week. But you have choices to make. And God judges and we're accountable to him for the choices we make. You know, there are many examples. This is not an exceptional case. There are many examples in Scripture of God giving people another chance. Let me just remind you of a couple of classic cases. Moses and Peter were both given another chance. There's Moses, one of the greatest leaders of God's people. But you remember his early history. He tried to bring about the deliverance of Israel in his own strength. Way back in the early days, he killed an Egyptian. He tried to do it that way. And of course, as a consequence of that terrible choice, Using his own strength, killing the Egyptian, he had to flee from Egypt and he went to Midian and he lived there for the next 40 years. The consequence of a bad choice. But this is the thing, after so long a time, 40 years, God appeared, it says in Scripture, again to Moses when he was 80. If you're feeling your years, a pretty young crowd, but I see a few people with little hair, less than me, grayer than me. Well, it doesn't mean you're older than me. I mean, I'm really moving up there, but... Moses was 80. So be encouraged. And God said to him in Exodus 3.10, he says, Now go, now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Egypt. Recommissioned. And another 40 years saga started. What a great example. And Peter, you think of Peter. Peter, in the New Testament, the Lord appears to Peter to recommission him and give him a major job, even though... He let the Lord down so badly. You know the story of Peter. He went so far as to publicly deny Jesus. And yet the Lord, you know the story. God, uh, the, Jesus asked Peter three times, corresponding to Peter's three denials. He said, do you love me? And the Lord's response to Peter's reaffirmation of his allegiance to Christ was what? to recommission him, give him a really important responsibility. He said, okay, Peter, you feed my sheep. So you see, God again and again is seen as a God who gives those that fail another chance to serve him. It's tragic. You know, I met a young woman recently who said, I, I can't really serve God. I was disobedient. You know, I shouldn't have married this non-Christian. I've had a, a tragic life, really, because I was disobedient. God won't use me. This is not what the Bible teaches. God is the God of renewal. And, and I want you to, to notice what he did for Jonah. Mind you, notice that God waits to ask Jonah to go to Nineveh. 
once he's safe on dry land. And it's very important to notice this, when the pressure's off. You see, what the Lord knows is that we're easily ready to agree to things under pressure. I mean, if I'd been in that well and say, Lord, I'll do anything, just get me out of here. We've all made promises. I'm sure we've all made promises to the Lord under pressure. We do that. Here's a couple of kids wrestling. This guy's in a lock hold and, and a stranglehold. And, 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 and you've seen kids doing this and you promise anything. Just let me go and I'll, I'll do it. Of course, once you're released, it's a different story. <laughs> now you're free. You can well, make a different decision. You see, but God doesn't want that. What the Lord is looking for, he's looking for our sincere and our willing and our thoughtful response to his call, not just a response under duress. And that's why I personally have a bit of reservation about emotional appeals. I've got to talk about the gospel, I always do, but I don't want to have five verses of just as I am and plead and have the emotions stirred to the point where you're just responding under the pressure, but not really willingly and thoughtfully hearing God's voice and responding to it. So important to understand God waited till Jonah was safe on dry land. It's wonderful. You know, there's so much about God in this chapter and about the way he works. One of the little things to remember about God who forgives our sins when we confess is that, that he doesn't hold grudges. I had a, a man who's confessed his same sin every day of the week. And I felt like God saying, what sin? What sin? Because he, he forgives and forgets. Well, he chooses not to call to mind. God can't have things in his mind. Uh, I can't have things in my mind that aren't in God's mind. But, but, but he doesn't hold grudges. But he always stays with his plan. And you'll see that. He's a God full of grace, but he's always consistent. What Jesus said, our God is full of grace and truth. Very important to keep that in balance. So here's Jonah, given another chance, but his assignment remains the same. God stays with his plans. And he's there going to Nineveh. You remember, Nineveh was way up there in Iraq. I just want to remind you, it's just north of the modern uh, capital of Baghdad. And this whole region, man, this region today, Iran and Israel and Jordan and Syria, man, Syria with all its upheavals and Iraq with all its problems, it's all the same region, still in turmoil. And that's where God was still speaking and sending Nineveh, uh, sending Jonah rather to that dangerous place, a place of dreadful evil with God's message. It was a dangerous assignment. I put this picture up to bring it up to date, of course, because being God's messenger can be a dangerous assignment. This is a brother in northern India. Said he was a Christian and got beaten up. Uh, luckily, he wasn't killed. And it's just a reminder that God calls his people sometimes to dangerous assignments and for a Jewish prophet to go to the Assyrian capital. Man, that was a tricky assignment. But of course, I don't think Jonah was worried because Jonah, who was saved from certain death in a big fish, he knew for sure that God can and does deliver his servants from impossible situations. So I don't think Jonah was really worried about his safety. And we need to uh, think a lot about God's care for this disobedient Jonah. I mean, if all God cared about was Nineveh, um, if all God cared about was just getting the gospel to Nineveh, the message of repentance, 
Well, he could have sent somebody else. But God cares about his servants. And, and it was very important to send Jonah because God wants Jonah and all of us to learn and grow through our mistakes. I do a lot of mistakes. I miss Vivian's proofreading. You probably see some spell, spelling mistakes on my PowerPoints these days. But you see, mistakes are okay, but we need to learn from them. And Jonah was going, he'd been through some very difficult experiences. But there's a very important principle in the Bible that growth doesn't come from lightening the load all the time. It, it comes actually from being ready to face the challenges that the load brings, the trials. When we step out of, in faith and that load remains, ah, that's growth. Some Christians say, oh, I just want God to remove the difficulties, to, to make it easy. But that's not the way God operates. Uh, you see, we learn so much about about what God does about our failures and how he operates as we go through this story. And this God who didn't reject Moses, he didn't reject Peter, he didn't reject Jonah, who all failed badly, he's a God that does not reject us, does not disown us when we fail. But this is the warning, he may discipline us to get us back on track with his plans. We do things we shouldn't do. And God allows us to be disciplined. We see that all through life in the church and in our own lives. But all that discipline, all that trial is to bring us back on track with his plans. Now, one word of warning here. You might be thinking, oh, well, it's great. With Jonah's example, maybe I'll get more chances. Don't start presuming on God's grace. You aim at obeying God the very first time. Don't go out there and plan on more chances. God is gracious and ready to give you second chances, but you, and you take them thankfully if you get them. But you see, what God is wanting you to do is obey him the first time. God is able and ready to use our failures to help us to grow spiritually and, and, and be re-enabled to do what he wants us to do. But obedience the first time is wonderful. But Jonah, the task is absolutely clear. Verse 2 says, go and preach the message I gave you. And that, of course, raises our second question. What message should we be preaching? Very clear. The, the, this chapter says, go and preach the message I gave you. And in Jonah's case, this time there was no dragging of the feet. Jonah didn't waste any time. There was no small talk. He didn't go any, through any crowd-pleasing antics. He didn't do what I sometimes do and... Vivian used to complain sometimes, you always tell a joke and take time up when you should be getting into the Word of God. You didn't get a joke this morning, but hey, what, what, Jonah's example is don't waste time, get into it. You're a prophet. It's like Peanuts, says Linus and Charlie Brown. Linus says, you know, when I grow up, I think I'll be a great prophet. I'll speak profound truths, but no one will listen to me. What Charlie Brown said, if you know ahead of time, no one's going to listen, why speak? Well, says Linus, we prophets are very stubborn. <laughs> well, Jonah was a stubborn prophet, and he moves out in verse 4. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. Here he is preaching what God said, the message is a message of judgment. Now, because Jonah had no problem with that. He, he was happy to focus on the coming judgment. 
He actually hoped that the wicked Ninevites should be destroyed. In fact, he was looking forward to it happening in about 40 days. 40 days exactly, actually. I mean, you could never accuse Jonah of being a preacher of cheap grace. He did that. He just went in and he called into question their future. I think we should remember, if you're sharing the gospel, and especially if you're preaching it publicly, we should remember the way Jonah called into question their future. It's part of our prophetic ministry when we're preaching the gospel because the gospel is essentially a message of hope for the future. Of course, we're not like Jonah. We, we can't put a timeline on. Jonah was fortunate. He said, you've got 40 days. We can't put a timeline on our message about the day of judgment. But I want you to remember this. There will be a day of judgment. And sometimes, hey, we can say that there will be one, and sometimes we fail to do that. And people get all bent out of shape sometimes about the future. You remember at the end of last year, there was that, that Mayan prophecy. People were all getting excited. This Mayan prophecy is going to come true, they said. 21st of December, 2012, will be the end of the world. And you read about people who are saying, we won't have Christmas this year, this is it. Of course, you've heard those stories many times, like these fellas, they're working on it. He's got the world will end in, and he puts his date in for 2014, but he's crossed it out and crossed it out. And his friend said, hey, hold up, we also forgot to carry a one on page three. Jesus said, nobody knows the day or the hour, of course, but I want to say there will be a, a moment. It's like there's, there's uh, Lucy and Marcy again. <laughs> he said it again, Marcy. You heard him. He said, we're in the last days. He stood right in front of all of, all of us tonight, and he said, the world's coming to an end. Aren't you scared, Marcy? Do, doesn't that bother you? Aren't you terrified? Because Marcy's sleeping through it all. She said, she's not terrified. No, it's not our job to terrify people. I don't want, but I do want to suggest that we need to talk about the last chance. We do need to talk about the termination of God's purposes. Uh, and Jonah, of course, is very clear about that. Now, given the response of the people of Nineveh to this message of judgment, which he boldly declared, you've got to assume a little bit that Jonah's eight-word statement, that was the shortest message he ever heard preached, maybe he gave some testimony. I don't know. Uh, maybe explain why God would be destroying him. We, we, but all I can say is whatever Jonah did or didn't do, what he stayed with the message that God gave him. And he made it clear that God would be soon judging them for their wickedness. I want to suggest to you, brothers and sisters, it's an important example for all of us who stand in pulpits or in personal witness preach and teach the word of God because our mandate is absolutely clear is to speak the message God's given us. Don't be tempted to say, in my opinion, this. You know what I think? We speak the message God has given us. This is what, you know what, 1 Peter 4, 11, I didn't space that, but you know that verse. Peter said, look, if anyone speaks, they should do it as one who speaks the very words of God. What a challenge that is. If anyone speaks... You know, I could tell you all kinds of interesting stuff. You surely have some of my chemistry lectures. But man, this is not what... i got to speak the words that God gives me in His Word, and we must do that. And that's what 
If you're a young brother wanting to preach, be careful about that. I think today, some of today's popular preachers, uh, the message never seems to include a reminder there's going to be a day when God judges us. In this case, it was rather special. Judgment is revealed in 40 days. It's tough to be certain why it was 40 days. Uh, we've met 40 days. I mentioned it with Moses. 40 days actually frequently occurs in Scripture. A little Bible study you can do. 40 days is generally used as a period of testing in one's life, of examining your life for authenticity prior to some very special culminating action on God's part. You know, there are many examples. Uh, 40 days of rain in Noah's Ark. But that was a period of washing away centuries of moral pollution and sin. There was 40 days wandering in the wilderness where God's people were being trained to trust God in all the circumstances of life. Elijah had 40 days on a run, and it brought him from the fear that he knew in Jezebel's palace uh, to a place where God again recommissioned him. Elijah was recommissioned. And of course, the wonderful 40 days of Christ's temptation that demonstrated Christ's pure motive, his purposeful intent, his unswerving commitment, a wonderful Lord. Now, these, these are all cases of 40 periods of time that, 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 that become a training or testing period before some concluding action on God's part. Now, what's the, what's the, and that's 40 days of resurrection appearances. I'm, I should mention that because that provided the very proof that the life Jesus promises will, will be always part of the blessing that we can have for all eternity. The resurrection of princes. But I say, well, what's the 40 days here? I, 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 my, I think the main significance of the 40 days here is that just, look, God was just being himself. He's a kind, loving, gracious God, and he's giving Nineveh a chance to repent. You see, God wasn't like Jonah. God loved these wicked people. Uh, but he's a God of love and justice. We understand that. God can't condone sin. So, so when he sent Jonah to Nineveh, he, he gave this warning of impending doom, and he gave them 40 days. That was enough time to change their ways. Because you know what God's like? We had this last week. I repeat it, 2 Peter 3, 9, that God is patient with you. He's not wanting anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. That's the nature of God. On the other hand, he wasn't giving them infinite time because remember this, Genesis 6, 3 tells us God's spirit won't always strive with men and women. So I, I would say the 40 days is just an important reminder that God has set limits on his patience with sinners. Now, neither Jonah nor the Ninevites knew this, of course, but, but God had been working in this city. And the response was astounding. It was... I would say the world's greatest revival because repentance touched every part of the city from the king down to the poorest servants that even affected the animals. The only place in scripture where revival affected the dogs and cats and everybody else. The whole, I mean, the, the change in Nineveh was clearly a special movement of God. It was a genuine revival. The whole city was involved. Those who didn't hear Jonah in person must have passed the message on for, uh, to someone else. Everybody heard. 
And that's true of any revival, by the way. A spiritual awakening worthy of being called a revival always affects the entire community. It'd be wonderful if a few more people were saved at Boulevard. You are seeing blessing. It'd be great to see it increase. But you see, it's when faith and repentance captures all of Hollywood that you begin to talk revival. And so it is. And I want to get to the key now. The key to this thing, verse 5, is they believe God. And just remind you, there are two keys to salvation. Repentance and faith. Look what Scripture says. Remember when Paul preaching Acts 20, 21, he said, Look, I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus. Turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus. This is the key. We need to focus on this for a moment. Remember this, Acts 20, 21. Salvation needs two things, repentance and faith. They go together. Real repentance results in faith, and real faith results in repentance. And when you share the gospel, remember that. And do remember this too. If you're a believer, don't think, well, that was important for me to get into the kingdom. For believers, repentance and faith is, is not just something that got you into the kingdom of God. It's something you should be a daily way of life. You should repent every day. Exercise faith every day. Uh, all that, that, that Jonah could have been close enough to God to see the results of repentance and faith. But what happened here, yes, there was repentance, there was faith, uh, but Jonah got upset about it. Can you believe this? Even the, king, the king's insight is actually more perceptive than Jonah's. He realized, the king realized that sinners have no claim on God's acceptance. He doesn't presume. He says, who knows? Who knows? Verse 9 who knows, perhaps even yet God will hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. The king recognized what we all need to recognize, that, that there's no bargain to be made with God. You can't, you can't bargain with God and say, well, you do this and I'll do that. You see, what, what the king of Nineveh recognizes is what a lot of well-educated theologians in seminaries seem to miss today. But it's key that our acceptance by God it depends solely on his mercy and grace. It's never to do with performance. That's the gospel we preach. That's what this church stands for. The gospel of Jesus is that it's God's grace and mercy alone. And that's what we must preach. We must recognize afresh the power of the gospel. I hear preachers talking as if God could somehow be manipulated by humans. That somehow he's obligated to respond to us because we'll, well, we press the right button. Blessing only comes one way. I mean, you think of all the stories in the Bible. The prodigal son, fantastic example. He realized what we all have to realize. He realized, I am no more worthy. I am not worthy. And the king of Nineveh, he had enough insight, enough humility to say, well, who knows? Perhaps God will do it because he knew it was God's prerogative to save. Now, God's response to their repentance, it, it, and let me deal with this little theological point. It's described in the King James Version in verse 10 of chapter 3 by what I think is an unfortunate phrase, God repented. Because that raises this question, third question, does God change his mind? Because you read the 
verse 10 in the King James Version, and God saw their works, and they turned from their evil ways, and God repented. Repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them, and he did it not. Now, why I think it's a little unfortunate translation is we've established that repentance is turning from something wrong. And that's something God would never have to do. God is pure and perfect and, and the embodiment of goodness. To, to think of turning from something wrong is, is totally inappropriate. God can be grieved, he can be sorry about something, but he can never repent. And this scripture is not the only scripture that seems to suggest that God changes his mind. Something the word relent might suggest. Relent comes in these verses sometimes. And there are lots of examples in scripture. You think what happened when Moses came down from Mount Sinai. He found people worshipping a golden calf. He pleaded with God on behalf of the people. And we read in Exodus 32:14, Then God relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he threatened. Uh, scripture, well, there are another example. Think of 1 Samuel 15, 11. God seemed to have second thoughts about making Saul king of Israel. I regret that I made Saul the king, for he turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. Think of those scriptures, and yet there are other scriptures that make it clear God doesn't change his mind. You think of Malachi 3, 6, I, the Lord, don't change. Numbers 23, 19, God's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Does God speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? So when you read scriptures, this is very important. When you read scriptures that suggest God seems to change his mind, remember that God always knew what he was going to do. God always does what he needs to do to fulfill his plans. Scripture's clear on that. Isaiah 46.10 God says, My purpose will stand. I will do all that I please. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. So here we are. In all these cases where God seems from a human perspective to have changed his mind, what you'll find is what has changed is human's conduct in response to what God has said. Very important. What has changed is the conduct of humans in response to what God has said. See, God often makes con conditional statements. Statements where what happens depends on whether we change. And God always takes into account the attitude and response of the people that he wants. Here's a good example, Jeremiah 18. If I announce that a certain nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and that's what he announced about Nineveh. But then that nation renounces its evil ways, then I'll not destroy it as I had planned. He goes on to say, if at another time I announce that the nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I'll reconsider the good I intended for it. So, Scripture's clear. God threatened Nineveh with destruction, but he knew that Nineveh would repent. And we see that Disaster for Nineveh was conditional on continued disobedience and, of course, vice versa. Let me illustrate this just so you'll get it. 
Uh, here's a picture. This is an Irish lady <laughs> struggling in Dublin against those, those strong winds and rain. And it's opposing her, and she's holding her hat and struggling to walk with her shopping, and it's holding her back. But you see, if she reversed her direction, the same wind would help her. The wind, there's a guy, he's changed direction, man, there's no choice where he's going to go. <laughs> the wind is so strong. But you see, the wind doesn't change. We have changed our relationship to us. And that's the principle. In a similar way, God doesn't change. God's plans will be fulfilled. But if we rever reverse direction in regard to God, that is repent, the effect is the opposite to what it was. I mean, why was one thief of the two crucified with Christ promised paradise and, and the other one remained condemned? Well, only one had a change of heart and repented. In the case of Nineveh, as in all these cases, it was the change in the conduct of the people of Nineveh towards God that saved the day. God was consistent in his behavior all along. And I, want, I, I was very interested to notice that in every instance where God changed the threat to punish people, it's always a case of God stopping the punishment. And the really, you know, the thing that strikes me about verse 10 is that it's not surprising. It was never God's desire to destroy the city of Nineveh. He didn't want any person, let alone the city, to be destroyed. We know that. This is God, Ezekiel 33, 11. God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent, repent of your evil ways. Why would you die, O house of Israel? This is God's heart. Now, God can never overlook sin. But I want to tell you this morning, it's just like God to forgive everyone that turns to him in repentance. Forgiveness isn't an afterthought with God. It's not that he, oh, well, okay, I'll change my mind. From the beginning, right from the beginning of the human race, instead of destroying the human race when they disobeyed him, God's eternal plan was what? To send his son in human form to allow his son to suffer and die willingly, so that what? He would be able to respond to repentance and faith and offer forgiveness. God's response to sin is consistent. Repentance is the only reset button that God offers. If you want a reset button this morning, that's the one God offers. And it needs to be true repentance, like Nineveh. You heard it this morning, sackcloth and ashes, serious repentance. A repentance where we do a U-turn, where we change. But what changes? Not God, you do. Get that clear. The message is, look, just turn around. And if you turn around, I don't care what problems you're having, you'll sail home through the storms. You know I've found that this year with the stormy year we've had. But you see, turning around and getting in line with God's will carries us through. Now very quickly, and I am over time, but you're with me, aren't you? I want to just answer this question. Yeah, you can journey in confidence if you're traveling God's will. But you need to really understand very quickly what does God really want. Now, we have the benefit that the king of Nineveh never had. I mean, he hoped for God's mercy on Nineveh, and he, and he got it. But we have the scriptures. 
And the scriptures explain what God really wants. If you want to know what God wants, the scripture's clear. Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. It says, let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. So to what? He may have compassion on him. To our God, he'll abundantly pardon. God wants you to seek him, to call upon him, to return to him, because he wants to pardon. Scripture's so clear, God responds. The Ninevites responded according to the light they had. But I need to remind you this morning that Christ himself, don't doubt this book, Christ himself reinforced the permanence of God's pardon for this one generation of Ninevites. The next generation went back into sin, but for this generation, Jesus said, the people of Nineveh, They'll stand up at the judgment with this generation to condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Then he said about the Lord himself, the one greater than Jonah is here. The Ninevites didn't know much, but they believed God. They acted on what they knew, and God responded in grace, because he does respond. It's clear what God really wants is that you believe his word, that you seek to live an obedient life in relationship with him, that you talk to him regularly. In fact, that you start living in a close relationship with him because that's how one day you live in heaven. I've just got some concluding slides. Our question, what does God want, is clearly asked and answered in Scripture. You're going to see my grandson tonight. My daughter and grandson and cousin and his wife are coming. Man, you're going to have a Humphreys family invasion. But I want you to notice, Micah, because his birthday is uh, June, is, is corresponding to this, this scripture that I want to give you. He's called Micah because of the answer to this question, what does God require of you? Micah 6, 8. This is what God asks of you, only this to act justly, love tenderly, and walk humbly with your God. I always think of that on June the 8th, Micah's birthday, but it's such an important scripture. What the Lord requires is so clearly answered. People talk about religion. Religion's fine as long as it's religion that God our Father accepts. Religion that our God our Father accepts as pure and spotless is this. See, it's practical stuff, brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Our Lord constantly condemned hypocrisy, those religious leaders, and he called us, his followers, to reflect his love every day by authentic actions. So don't say you're a Christian and walk carelessly. My last word is, you know the Nike commercial, folks. It's simple. Just do it. Just do it. That's what the Lord demands. Act justly. Love tenderly. And walk humbly with God. Let's pray. Father, help us to do it. We thank you that you're a pardoning God. Who is a pardoning God like you? Or who has grace so rich and free? Father, we know the Lord Jesus came to remind us that at the final judgment, some have claimed to have done all kinds of things in your name. But because I remained unrepentant and therefore had no personal relationship with you, you're going to have to say, go away, I don't know you.
Father, help us to think about that and to, to embrace you again this morning. And Lord, may we go into this week and be determined to just do it for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray.